0: H-A-W Tabor. Horace Austin Warner Tabor. If you've never heard of his name, he was at one point a uh, lieutenant governor in Colorado. Uh, He was a senator in the United States for a very brief amount of time, Uh, but he... married a young lady named Augusta Augusta Tabor. And uh, he was married to her for about 25 years. And in 1893, when he was married to her after 25 years, he found another young lady, uh, which was named Elizabeth McCourt. She would later become known as Baby Doe Tabor. Uh, Baby Doe Tabor was a young lady. They would say that she was the most beautiful lady in all of the West. And uh, Tabor... uh, Grew up to be a kind of a wealthy guy. Him and his family migrated out to Colorado. They were some of the first settlers there. And while they were there, he began to be a philanthropist. He was um, using his wealth to do a variety of things. He was he built an opera house, uh, helped with schools and churches, and uh, helped with uh, the news carrier station there. He was a postman at one point, did all these different things. But as he was doing these things, he began also a general store. And oftentimes customers would come in and they wouldn't be able to afford what it was they would Bought. So he would begin to make investments in mines, etc. And he would make these investments, and as he did so, he began to be a very lucrative guy. He began to develop more and more wealth, and to the point where he owned millions of acres of land uh, in Colorado. Had They say about 175,000 acres of land back in Texas, where he was known to be investing in copper mines and lots of different things. But his wealth came primarily from a handful of mines in Colorado that were producing large batches of silver. And as he invested in those things and he saw more and more silver come to his way, he began to live a very luxurious lifestyle. Him and uh, his very young spouse, Baby Doe, I mean, they lived it up. If you were an uh, East Texas person, you've heard they're living high on the hog. Uh, that's what they were doing. And as they were doing these things, they enjoyed such a luxurious lifestyle that they were known throughout the, the land. And so as he made his way up into uh, into really leadership levels in Colorado. Eventually, uh, he finds himself in D.C. While he's in D.C. is where he meets this young lady. Uh, But what he does is he just literally just begins to to build a lifestyle of extravagance. And then one day, Congress passed what was called uh, the the Sherman Silver... um, Purchase Act. And when they passed that in 1893, he, uh, he went basically bankrupt, lost pretty much everything that he had, became destitute. Uh, what they did was they, they passed that to drive inflation up and they wanted all the commodities to come down. And as a result, everything that he had became nothing overnight. And as a result, he loses everything. Six years later, he is the postman uh, in Denver, Colorado. That's his humble lifestyle. His wife, Baby Doe, his last words to her, as he dies with appendicitis in 1899, was this: He says, "Go guard the matchless claim." Um, uh, the matchless mind. The matchless mind will pay off all of my mistakes." And it is said that she lived in the matchless mine for the next 30-plus years of her life. And she died there in one winter storm in the early, uh, mid-1930s, 1935, at the age of 81. They found her dead after a winter. She had nothing. Now, you might ask the question, why why do you share the story of H.A.W. Tabor and Baby Doe Tabor? Well, I share that story because they had everything and left with nothing. But you remember the one woman I told you that he was married to, Augusta Tabor? Well, she took all the wealth that she had when they were married, and she invested it, and she was wise with it. She did not live a luxurious lifestyle. And later, she would give all of her wealth to her son um, in uh, 1895 when she passed away. And that was about half a million dollars back then that she had she'd given him. To this point today, that would have been worth over $18 million in 2022. So if you understand how much she saved, you have two parallels. You have this one guy who is, in some ways, going about and investing in a myriad of things, and he looks one way as he lives a luxurious lifestyle. You have someone else who they seem to have as much as he did but lives a more meager lifestyle and may not have been known like he was, but the reality was is they saved and invested wisely. Well, today we're going to dive into James chapter 5. And in James chapter 5, it seems to be a somewhat of an odd turn. Um, and it's really not odd at all because what James is doing, he is building on really where he had left off in chapter 4. At the end of chapter 4, there's a warning that, hey, listen, we, we ought to be careful not to plan too far ahead because our life is just a mist. It's a vapor. It comes and it goes. It's like a light that comes out and then vanishes quickly. As a result of that, we need to be careful about the choices we make. He then concludes and continues this thought with how it And it really shapes even around our money. And so if you see the heading there in James chapter 5, it might say a warning to the rich. It may have something to do with a warning to those who have wealth. And so that's where we're going to be diving in here in a few moments. Uh, Real quickly, want to welcome those that are joining us in Edgewood and as well as online. We're so glad to be hanging out with you guys today. And we can't wait to dive in. In verse 1 of chapter 5, James, the half-brother of Jesus, says this, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Now, James seems to be shifting a bit from chapter 4, and the idea is is that he has one subset of people in his mind as he concludes this thought in what we know as chapter 4, where he's been in some ways, warning those who are investing and are businessmen and they're traveling from this city to that city and going from such and such places and they're talking about the trades and all the things that they're going to do. He gives a warning to them to say, hey, listen, don't get ahead of yourself. Here, it seems to be that he has another group of people in mind that he's not necessarily talking to the same group of people, but he is certainly addressing a group of people who have a present challenge going on in their life. And you look there, he says, "'Come now, you who are,' what? "'Rich.'" And then he says, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. And when you read that, I don't know about you, but I feel like it's a bit of an Old Testament throwback. Like it feels like one of the Old Testament prophets that are in some ways um, overbearing and in some ways very challenging and they have a very direct message. And if you were this group of people, as James, were saying that, you might have said to yourself, like, man, he's pushy like, golly, what's with it? Like, what did he have for breakfast today? And you might have been kind of wondering, like, why is he so, like, overbearing, and why is he so strong on this? And the reason that he seems to be making this approach is because he knows that riches can tangle up a myriad of people, that riches and wealth can be a very difficult challenge for people so much so that we see throughout the scriptures that there are oftentimes warnings around people who are wealthy and how it relates to the kingdom of heaven. You might even remember the words of Jesus where he says it's easier for a man to go through the eye of a needle or a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to what? Enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, why does Jesus say things like that? Well, it seems to be because that's what James is warning. He goes, listen, you who are rich, you need to weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. And so he's just basically saying to them, listen, if you are wealthy, then you need to be careful about how you handle the things that God has entrusted to your care." Now, I don't know about you. Maybe you're here and you're like, I don't really have to worry about that. Like, I'm like, I've never been rich. And uh, there's been a myriad of studies throughout the years. And oftentimes people are asked the question, well, how much would you have to have in order to be wealthy? And oftentimes the response that people have had is double what I currently have. For instance, if a home uh, is making $50,000 together, then they would think, well, if that number was doubled, then we would be wealthy. Uh, perhaps maybe you're uh, bringing in about $120,000 in your home every single year and you think, man, if we could double that and have two hundred and forty dollars to $250,000, then we would be wealthy. Or perhaps if you are a large wage earner and you're bringing in $200,000 or $300,000, then you would just double that number. When you double it, you're like, hey, we, we finally arrived. The challenge with that thought process is that you miss this one fact, and that is... That you live in America. And as a result of living in America, you are among the most predominant wage earners in all the world. Matter of fact, look at it real quickly in the eyes. You, right now, regardless of where you are, because you have a car, and because your car typically has a place to park, which is a room, you are among the 1% most wealthiest people in all the world. That means that you are wealthier than 99% of the people across the globe. Now, you may look and you go, well, I don't feel that wealthy. And I would say, listen, just because you don't feel wealthy doesn't mean you're not wealthy. And if you compare your wealth to someone else, then you can be in a dangerous place. And so when he gives this warning, you may not think of yourself as wealthy, but friends, you have running water. You have air condition in most cases. You have a large amount of wealth at your exposure. Now, you may say, well, if you see my bank account, you would realize that I don't have much of anything. Listen, regardless of what's in your bank account, there is still a warning, and the warning is to who? Those who are rich. And friends, you are rich. And you might go, well, I'm rich in love. Well, I'm rich in mercy. I'm rich in grace. No, you are rich. And if you look over the course of the last decade, I would presume to believe that every single person in this room has had between 500000 five hundred thousand and a million dollars come through your hand in the last decade. And I would say that in many cases, it's been a large number greater than that which if, let's just say, you've had 500,000 come through your hands in the last decade, the question is, is what do you have to show for the 500,000? And if you have nothing in your bank account, then it doesn't mean that you're not wealthy, it just means that we're struggling to steward our wealth. And I think that's a really pertinent and important issue. Now, today we're not talking about finances and how we would handle finances, We are going to talk about this fall. We're going to do a series that we talk just about finances, about how we honor God and we steward them. We can't wait for that. At the beginning of the year, we're going to move from that, and we're going to tell you more opportunities. If you would say, I need to grow in the area of finances and and stewardship, then we're going to give you some tools to do that at the beginning of the year as well. That's not what this message is about, but I want you to realize that as he's talking about those who are wealthy and presumably those who he would say are rich then it really does matter what you do with your wealth. And so the reason why is because there's many warnings in Scripture. Matter of fact, Paul, if you want to hold your spot right there in James, we'll come right back to it. I want you to see what Paul writes to his friend Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. And he just says these words, beginning in verse 6. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. So godliness with contentment is great gain. And then he says, for we brought nothing into the world and we can not take anything out of the world. That's a fact, right? You didn't bring anything in and you don't take anything with you. So he then says, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Now, this is Paul, and we know from Philippians chapter 4 that Paul says, hey, I've known what it's like to be hungry and well-fed. I know what it's been like to be clothed and to be naked. I know what it's been like to be uh, cold and, and, and estranged. But he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me. So Paul knows what the idea of contentment looks like. And he says, hey, we're content when we have just the basic elements of our life taken care of. In verse 9, he goes on to say, but those who desire to be rich fall into what? Temptation. So those of us who make 50000 and we desire to make 100000 he says, you've got to be careful about that. That's what Paul is warning Timothy about. That's what Timothy is warning the church of Ephesus about as he pastors that local assembly of local believers. He's got to be saying, hey, guys, we got to be careful that we're not going to make plans to go to this city and that city. And we're not going to build our business and build wealth and try to double all of our earnings in the next year. Like we need to be careful. Matter of fact, James and I were talking the other day. And James was talking about, so you see this idea, like as the early church is beginning to move forward. There's certainly a warning to be careful, like not to get caught in this cycle of wealth, not to fall into a temptation. He says, into a snare. And the idea of the snare there in the Greek is literally a net. It's a device that you would trap an animal or a bird It's the idea that you would get caught because you fall into this. And then he goes on and he says, And it's into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And then he says something here that oftentimes is very misquoted. And he says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now you might have said or you might have heard it said that money is the root of all evil. That is not what the scripture says. That's very twisted and and out of context. And the reason why it's not true that money is the root of evil is because money is an inanimate object. Money in itself has no ability to move itself. Silver or gold or other investments can't do anything unless there is someone stewarding them. And so as a result of that, what you see Paul writing to Timothy, he says, it's the love of money... That what? Is the root of all kinds of evils. It's the position of someone's heart. It's the position of where we live. It's the desire to have more, to accumulate more, to get ahead. It's that temptation that we have to be careful about, which brings to mind more of what James is saying. He goes on and says this, It is through this craving, the desire to have more wealth, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves With many pangs. So when you see Paul's warning, what Paul is saying to Timothy is is that the it's the, the love of money that can lead people not only to temptation, but the love of money itself and the chasing of such investments has oftentimes led other people away from the faith. Which just is what James seems to be talking about here. So if you flip back over to James and you're in chapter 5, if you begin to look at verse 2, he goes on. He doesn't just say, hey, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. But then he says, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. The idea is he's trying to help them see that, listen, your, your riches will not last. So Just as we know that you brought nothing into the world and you take nothing out, as Paul said to Timothy, that's what James is trying to say to his audience. Listen, you brought nothing into the world, you're going to take nothing out of the world. As a result of that, you need to know that your riches are rotten and that they're they're going to fall off. They're moth-eaten. Now, the reason he says this in particular is because, and I'm having a very difficult time here, is because their wealth oftentimes came in the form of grains. It came in the the form of fruits. It came in the form of selling garments and making different linens. And as a result of that, he just gives a very clear analogy here. He goes, listen, your wealth is going to dissolve before your very eyes. The, The vineyards that you've planted, the grain that you've harvested, it will be gone very quickly. As a result, the garments that you have in your closet, they're gonna be moth-eaten. You can just know that these things will not last forever. He goes on in verse three and he says this, your gold and your silver have corroded. In their corrosion, there will be evidence against you and it will eat your flesh like fire. Now, that sounds like an Old Testament prophet there, doesn't it? Like I mean, I don't know, like you're reading this, this letter that's written to his audience, and it's being passed around as they're meeting in various places. And then you come across this part, like, oh, your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten, and by the way, your gold and your silver are corroded. And then he goes this, and in their corrosion, there will be evidence against you, and your flesh will burn like fire. Like, that's a warning, isn't it? This seems to be a strong warning, almost overbearing. And then he says this, because you have laid up your treasure in the last days. And that just reminds me of what Jesus seemed to be doing in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if you have been tracking with us in James, you know that James is in many ways taking this letter. And it seems to be as he is moving across the Sermon on the Mount. And so it seems to be that in all of James' warnings over the last handful of weeks that we've been together, he is plucking those from something he likely heard from Jesus himself. And if you remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, it almost seems to go hand in hand. Matter of fact, this is what Jesus says as a warning to the rich in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on what? Earth. Earth. And then he says, where moth and rust destroy. Does that sound familiar? Where did James get that from? Like you just had an epiphany one day? No, like he's heard this. He goes on and he says, and where thieves break in and steal. But then he says, but lay up for yourselves treasures in where? Heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then he says something. Jesus, from his own mouth, said this phrase. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And if there is one sentence in all the scripture that could pierce our hearts, I believe that one is it. And I know there's a multitude of scriptures that convict us and challenge us, but here, this has to, in some ways, convict us, challenge us, chasten us, and help us think as Americans who do have plenty. He just says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, why does Jesus say that? Jesus says that because as he warns the the wealthy and the rich, he is wanting to make sure that you're not merely investing on something that will corrode And rust away and one day fade away. And I don't believe that Jesus is merely talking about just tangible items, but I think you could have in mind that you know that from the scriptures, one day this earth goes away and God creates a new one. And in many ways, you have to ask yourself where am I going to build my life? Am I going to build my life on something that is temporary and that one day will fade away? Or am I going to build my life upon something that is permanent and that will be fixated for all time? It reminds me as Jesus even concludes the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, he goes, hey, you get a a choice. You can be a wise builder or a foolish builder. A wise builder is going to build his house on something that's permanent, that's strong, that lasts. That when the storms come and the waters rise, like your house can be built upon something that's solid. And he says, it's the rock of Christ and he says the foolish builder though likewise will build a structure that looks very very similar to the first one the challenge is the foundation will be laid on sinking sand now here i think is the correlation if we continue to invest merely here and this is our kingdom and our heart is here then we're investing in something that is tangible for the moment that will not last but if we have an eye fixed on heaven, and as Paul writes to the Church of Colossae in Colossians chapter 3, we would set our eyes on things above. We, we live here, and certainly we do business here, and there are ways to live here, but we keep our eyes fixated on things to come. We have to be wise. And as a result of that, we're not merely investing on things here, but we're investing in things to come. And that's really the conundrum that you and I have to work through where is our heart, and what does that reveal? It reveals where our treasure is. And so I think as we kind of read through this, you see this very strong warning to the rich. It almost comes across as too abrasive. It almost comes across as too challenging when you read it. And the question that you have to ask yourself is, is is he talking to me? And if he is talking to me, then, well, how, how do I know if I'm doing the right thing? How do I know if I'm spending my life in exorbitant ways? How do I know if I'm being wise or prudent? And I would just tell you that I don't know that I could tell you. You have to determine where your heart is. But I can tell you that personally, this is an area that I can wrestle with some. It's an area that I can wrestle with in a lot of ways. And the question you have to ask, or at least I ask myself is, Am I building enough into the kingdom to come? And if you continue on here, he says this in verse four. He says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Now, this here is a determining factor for me. So, not only am I investing in things to come, but what are my riches or what is the wealth driving me to? So here, if you look at the warning, he, the warning is, hey, you are not only wealthy and not only are you elite in class and status, and not only do you have more as a wage earner than most of the society, but what he says next is really challenging. He says, hey, look, you are you're cheating, keeping back by fraud those who have labored in your own fields. So the idea here is that you have a crop that's coming up that's yielding great fruit and it's grain. And you have people come in and they help you sheave the grain and gather it up. And at the end of a very difficult day's work, you'll, you left your wallet at home. And you got nothing to pay them. And hey, I'll pay you tomorrow. And they come the next day and they work dif- a difficult day. They are sweating and toiling. Their hands have, have bruises and scrapes and cuts. And as a result, you see their labor. And at the end of day two, hey, guys, I, I'm just not going to be able to pay you. Like I, I lost my wallet, but hey, things are tight at home. And in some ways, this owner weasels his way out of due, just, fair payment. Now, the question you got to ask yourself, is it right if the rich oppress the poor by withholding goods and services for goods and services? And the deal is, is you know that's wrong, right? It's wrong for someone to come to your house, frame it up, and then you just... You just go, hey, I don't have any money to pay you. Like, that's the conversation you have before they frame your house, isn't it? Yes? Are y'all with me? Yes. And so you're having somebody come and remodel your bathroom. And you got the money in your account, but they remodel your bathroom, and the tile is a little bit crooked, and you don't like it. And it's a means to say, I'm not going to pay you. As a result, you don't. He's talking to a group of people here who's saying, listen, if you're not careful, your riches are being led by fraud. And now the problem is not just that, that you've been fraudulent, but look what the problem is. The problem is, is that it's crying out against you, and the cries of harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. The, the reality is, is you may think, well, nobody else knows. But the cries have reached the Lord of hosts, and the Lord of hosts is a title there that might be in your Bible, the Lord of the Sabbath. But it's the idea used oftentimes, with emphasis added in the scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament, that the Lord of hosts is the very one who is the host of the Israelite army, he is the one who led. The captives free across the Red Sea. He is the one who parted the waters and brought them in. He is the one who allowed the Israelites to walk around Jericho and he brought the walls down. This is the Lord of hosts. Now, the reason that's important with emphasis added is that the Lord of hosts has heard the cries because of the oppression of the rich and their unwillingness to pay the poor. And as a result of that, they think they're okay. And what James is saying, no, you're not. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord, Jehovah, is the one who will one day bring judgment against you. You might think you're in the right, but he'll reveal you're wrong. Now, that's freeing for two reasons. It's freeing because... If we think we're going to escape, we need to know that there is a judge and an arbitrator who's not going to allow it. It's freeing because if you're the one who's been oppressed, you need to know that the Lord will eventually avenge every wrong in the world, and he'll make it right. Matter of fact, friends, when we forgive someone who has hurt us in a very deep way, what we're doing in that forgiveness is we're choosing We're choosing to entrust that forgiveness to the Lord, believing that God will bring about his purposes in his due time for the one who hurt you or for the one who cheated you or for the one who maliciously talked about you. We're entrusting that to the Lord. And so we are freely able to forgive because we know the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the Sabbath will take care of his purposes. Make sense? Now you may struggle to believe that in the scriptures, but if you remember Abel's blood cried out against Cain's murder. Remember that? That's Genesis chapter four, very early in the Bible. We see that. Um, The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah cried out against its own people. You see ways that things have risen before the Lord. When Israel was in Egypt for 400 years of bondage at the hands of the Egyptians, it was their cries that the Lord heard. And listen, the Lord hears these things, and he sees these things. And you should not be mistaken that the Lord of the Sabbath will avenge his name and his purposes. A great example that I'll tell you, you and go back and fact check me on it if you'd like, is the sin of King Ahab against a guy named Naboth. And you'll see that story in 1 Kings chapter 21. But Naboth had a, a vineyard that was rightfully his, that he had inherited And King Ahab, which was a wicked king, married to a woman named Jezebel, right? You never want to marry a woman named Jezebel. Um, He has this wife named Jezebel, and Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard. And he goes to Naboth and basically says, hey, Naboth, listen, man, I'll... Uh, let's do something, man. I'll buy it outright, or if you would like, I'll exchange it for, for this piece, for another piece, which Naboth, a classic Jew, uh, what you would call a hesed or a loyal Jew, says no. Like, it's this is ancestry land. Like, I'm called to hold on to this. And that was just the loyalty that he had. He knew this was rightfully mine, and I'm supposed to keep it. Like, that's what blesses my ancestry. In which Ahab wants to plot and figure out a way to, to scheme and manipulate to make that his land, and he's not successful. And so as a result, he goes back home and he pouts, and as he's pouting, Jezebel begins the plot. And Jezebel basically makes up the story about Naboth and and basically has him murdered as a result of his murder she goes into her husband who is still pouting and she says hey Ahab i've taken care of it naboth is no longer now go and take the vineyard which is rightfully yours which was not rightfully his and as a result of the cheating and the scandaling and naboth being accused of treason and killed and murdered in front of the city god would eventually bring judgment Matter of fact, this is what God told through the prophet Elijah to Ahab. This is it. 1 Kings 21, verse, verse 19. He, the Lord, tells Elijah, say to him, and say to him is Ahab. This is what he says. And you shall say to him, Ahab, thus says the Lord, have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, in this place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your blood? own blood. He says, listen, what you did was foolish and I will bring about my vengeance. I am the Lord of hosts. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Do you see what James is saying? James is saying, listen, the Lord hears the cries of the harvesters. You've cheated them. You've lied to them. You've manipulated. You've kept back. You had plenty to pay. You could have wrote, wrote a check, no problem, and you chose not to because you were using your wealth to an advantage in a way that made them more destitute and more poor and you more powerful. And he goes, and that's a problem. And that's exactly what Naboth experienced at the hands of the king of Israel and his wife Jezebel. As a result, Elijah's words would bring about some brief repentance in Ahab's life. Ahab would be spared from the consequence, but their son would not. Their son would die in the very place of Naboth's vineyard. And later, when Jehu became king of Israel, he went to Jezebel and her palace and she was thrown down by her own eunuchs and her blood and body splattered all over the place at the hands and it says that the dogs licked up her blood to the point that even Jehu said, listen, no queen should be rightfully disposed of that way. Go get her body. And as he sent his people to find her body, there was nothing there outside of her skull and her hands and her feet. And that's when the, really the prophecy of the Lord all came true, just as Elijah had said to Ahab. Now, let me ask you a question. If God brings about vengeance in that way, hey, don't you think he's serious about how the rich would oppress the poor? Oh, let me ask that one more time. Are y'all asleep? Are y'all with me? Do y'all, y'all see the seriousness here? Like, it's a good reason for us to take care of widows and orphans. That's a good reason for the church to be a a place of liberation in a day of oppression. That's the good time for the church to be different. And listen, maybe you're here and you think, well, you know what? The reason I don't give to the church is I don't know what they're doing. Listen, may your blood be on your own hands. Because I can tell you that even as a pastor, if someone to take all the wealth that you gave to the local church and they were to go to Tahiti with their family and live it up, Do you believe that if the Lord heard the cries of those oppressed in Egypt, that he'll hear the cries of the oppressed in the local church when a pastor takes them? You better believe it. You better believe it. So listen, I can promise you that as I read through this text, I'm not going to Tahiti with your money. I can promise you that it would be more dreadful for me to take advantage of you than I want to even think or embrace. Do you see that? That's the promise of God's word. That's the warning that he gives to the rich. He goes on in verse 5 and 6. He says, You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. So what he does here is he just says, listen, you have lived high on the hog. And there may be something that brings your wealth down, and it could be an economic disaster. That's what H.A.W. Tabor faced. But more than that, he goes, listen, you need to know that if you are wealthy, and you're taking advantage of people, then he goes, it's going to be on you. And listen, I don't think anywhere in this text, and I really can't see anywhere in Scripture that you could definitively say that it's normative for every one of us to be poor and oppressed to be more like Jesus. I don't see that. I don't think that's the goal. And if you're walking out of here today and you think, man, am I supposed to sell everything I have? I don't know, maybe if that's what the Lord calls you to. What I really think the scriptures are warning us against is a luxurious, extravagant lifestyle that takes advantage of other people and that promotes us to be godlike. The warning is to make sure that you know where your heart is because if you follow your heart, you will closely right behind it discover someone's what? Treasure. And I think that's the warning here. The warning is to make sure that you and your extravagant lifestyle are not building a kingdom here that will be destroyed. And as you build a kingdom here, have the expectation in your mind that there's a kingdom for you in the next. See, the reality is is that you and I are to be building now into the kingdom to come because that's where our treasure should lie and live. And I do think that it's delicate. So what I mean by that is this. I think we are called to steward our resources. The way I like to remind myself oftentimes is that everything I own is on loan. Everything I own is on loan. Hey, y'all say that with me, Edge would join us. Everything I own is on loan. And if you can live with that mindset, then it helps you, one, as you have things come in, it helps you to save like the ant. It helps you to not be a sluggard. It helps you to be wise and prudent. As you think about everything on loan, not only are you a steward, but it helps you to invest wisely in things to come. To give generously to the local church, to give generously to other people, to do things throughout the city and the community, the state and across the world, to bless other people's ministries that you believe in in order that the word of God might spread. That's what we're to be doing. At the same time, what we shouldn't be doing is living what I would call the American standard. And what that oftentimes means is we have a big house and lots of stuff, but we can't afford much of it. That's not wise. And I think that's what the warning is. It's, the warning is not to say, hey, look at my SUV. Hey, look at my boats. Hey, look at my new building. And the reality is, is you're strapped from month to month. That's not what we're to do. That's not how we're to live. That's not wise. It's not prudent. And it reveals our heart. If you go, I'm going to build a great kingdom here that I can't afford, then how can you convince anyone that, that you're living according to godly principles? Does it make sense? And so the goal is, is to go, Lord, help me to trust you, help me to steward your resources. Lord, I know I'm rich already because I was blessed to be born and live or move to a place that's called the United States, where wealth abounds, where opportunity abounds. And you can beat yourself up for the fact that you're an American, but I don't think that's the goal contextually, I don't think the goal is to, to do that. But I, what I do think is wise is to make sure that you're prudent in the ways that you invest into the kingdom to come and that you're wise with the Lord has entrusted you. And here's why. I'm just giving you two sobering truths, but I'm not going to unpack them. The very first one is, is that all of us in this room will appear before, before God in the judgment seat. That's just true. And when I say the judgment seat, just so you're clear, there's two judgments. There's what's called the white throne judgment and the white throne judgment is where God separates the wheat from the chaff or the goats from the sheep. It's where he clearly says, these are mine and these aren't. It's the idea of Philippians 2 where every knee will bow before God under earth and in heaven. And every, not only will knee bow, but every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And at that moment, that's the white throne judgment. You're on his team or you're not. If you're on his team, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're not giving an account in that particular judgment for anything other than, do I know him and have I trusted him? As a result, if you have trusted him, your name is the land book of life. And as a result of that, you've experienced the day of salvation. And because of that, you are on his team. Listen, if you're on his team, there will be another judgment, not a judgment that brings about condemnation, but a judgment that is called the Bema judgment. And that judgment is simply asking one question. What have you done with the things I entrusted to your care? If everything you have is on loan, what did you do with what I gave you? And really the property owner simply wants to know what the manager did with what he entrusted to your care. And that's when you'll give an account have I invested in things that burned up and that faded away, or have I invested in things that will outlast me? That's the goal, and that's the question you've got to ask yourself. Lord, I don't think it's a sin to be wealthy. It's a sin to use my wealth to oppress people and to make a kingdom here. Lord, I don't think it's a sin to have some money flowing through my hands. It's a sin to not use it wisely. Joseph of Arimathea was a very wealthy man, he is not condemned in scripture, but he's celebrated. Do you know why? Because he took his tomb and he gave it for the body of who? Jesus. That's a pretty good investment, wasn't it? Now let me ask you a question. When he gave that tomb to the body of Jesus presumably, maybe they could use that tomb for him too at one point. But the reality is is that that's the deal. He's not condemned because of his wealth. Solomon's not condemned because of his wealth. Abraham wasn't condemned because of his wealth. Now, I'm not saying that that means that you should be wealthy and that God should make you wealthy. If that's what you've heard, then you've missed that too. What I am saying is, is that if everything is on loan, you ought to be a good steward. And the second sobering fact or truth is just that, hey, your treasure will reveal your heart. And what's interesting is, is it's not that your mouth, that reveals your heart. It's not what I say. It's not what I try to convince you of that reveals my heart. It's my treasure. If you are to look around, you should be able to see, hey, what's important to people? And I just pray that when people see me and when people see you, that one of the things they know is that not only do we love Jesus, but we love people. And as a result of that, we're generous to Christ. We're generous to his church and we're generous to his people. And we're generous to those who are pressed around us in significant ways even if no one else sees that. Lots to think about, right? But that was James's warning to the rich. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your message. And I pray, Lord, that you would use it to encourage our hearts, to challenge us, to convict us. But more than that, help us, Lord, just to properly align ourselves with you. Lord, help us To just be wise and not wise in our own eyes, but Lord, wise as stewards of the things you've entrusted to our care. Lord, would you help us to be great property managers? Lord, you have given us so much in life, and I pray, Lord, that we don't simply build a kingdom here. Lord, would you protect our hearts and our minds against thinking this is our home? And Lord, would you give us a proper view of eternity? Help us to set our minds and our eyes on things above. And would you help us to realize that one day, We're going to be with you if we know you and we get to take nothing with us. So Lord, if that's the case, Lord, help us to not hoard and keep as if this is all we have. We need your wisdom and we need your spirit's help. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.